Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 55, the book of Acts, chapter 27. There's something about a sea story that has captivated listeners and readers since there were ships to challenge the awesome power and mystery of the deep and survivors to tell their harrowing tales. People who have never been on a boat nor even seen the ocean are riveted and enthralled when hearing of gigantic waves and gale force winds of ancient times that are that are, uh, right through today that are determined to reduce the wooden planks and beams of even the mightiest sailing vessels to kindling. Some of our greatest fictional and real heroes are intrepid sailors and fearless ship's captains who have faced nature's fury with steely nerves and seamanship skills learned from harsh experiences and from instincts. I think that is why so many Bible readers are intrigued by Acts chapter 27, a story of Paul's struggle, a near tragedy at sea, on his way to face the emperor in Rome. Great writers have often compared human life to a journey across stormy seas. And some of our greatest Christian hymns use that theme. That is probably why many Bible expositors and why the sermons of countless pastors find an allegory of the experience of the, of the human soul to be at the heart of the meaning of Acts chapter 27. Truth be known, however, too often this sort of approach to Luke's record of the, the treacherous journey from Caesarea to Rome winds up doing little more than finding some clever ways to inject the speaker's personal theological biases. And I think this draws attention away from what is being communicated to us. What we have here is a true story, verifiable in its authenticity. A story which all too many sailors of the Mediterranean used to face during the thousands of years when wind power was the primary means of propulsion across its vast and, and often dangerous expanse. So I don't want to diminish from both the actual historical event that this is, nor to take away from the Lord's stated goal that Paul would go to Rome and he would speak truth to the emperor. I don't want to do that by allegorizing. What we are meant to learn is that not even the seeming limitless and untamable power of the oceans and of the atmosphere could defeat God's will in this regard. This ought to give us great comfort because I know that my time to depart this world and go to my heavenly home will happen only when the Lord determines it. No danger and no force man-made spiritual or in nature can derail the Lord's plan for my life or the lives of any and all who trust in Him. 
I suspect that what we'll read now in Acts chapter 27 had much to do with the inspiring thoughts that we read from Paul in the book of Romans after he had successfully made it to Rome despite all the danger and tribulation that he faced along the way. In Romans 8, 38 and 39 we read this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers, neither what exists nor what is coming, neither powers above nor powers below nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. Outside of Luke's goal to portray accurately Paul's narrow escape from death on his voyage to Rome, this passage from the book of Romans is the message we need to take away from Acts chapter 27. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1398. 1398. Once it had been decided that we should set sail for Italy, they handed Shaul and some other prisoners over to an officer of the emperor's regiment named Julius. We embarked in a ship from uh, Adramidium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of the province of Asia and put out to sea accompanied by uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius considerately allowed Shaul to go visit his friends and receive what he needed. Putting to sea from there, we sailed close to the sheltered side of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Then across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia. And so we reached Myra and Lycia. There the Roman officer found an Alexandrian vessel sailing to Italy and put us aboard. And for a number of days we made little headway and we arrived off Sinaitis only with difficulty. The wind would not let us continue any farther along the direct route so we ran down along the sheltered site of Crete from Cape uh, Salmon and continued to struggle along, hugging the coast. We reached a place called Pleasant Harbor near the town of Lycia. Now since much time had been lost and continuing the voyage was risky because it was already past Yom Kippur, Paul advised them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be a catastrophe. Not only with huge losses to the cargo on the ship, but with the loss of our lives as well. However, the officer paid more attention to the pilot and the ship's owner than to what Paul said. Moreover, since the harbor was not well suited to sitting out the winter, the majority reached the decision to sail on from where, uh, from there in the hope of reaching Phoenix, another harbor in Crete, and wintering there, where it's protected from the southwest and northwest winds. Now when a gentle southerly breeze began to blow, they thought that they had their goal within grasp, so they raised the anchors, started coasting by Crete close to shore. But before long, there struck us from land a full gale from the northeast, the kind they call an Evracalon. The ship was caught up. It was unable to face the wind, so we gave way to it, and we were driven along. And as we passed into the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with strenuous effort to get control of the lifeboat. They hoisted it aboard and then fastened cables tightly around the ship itself to reinforce it. 
Now fearing they might run aground on the Sirtis sandbars, they lowered the topsails and thus continued drifting. But because we were fighting such heavy weather, the next day they began to jettison non-essentials. The third day, they threw the ship's sailing equipment overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither the sun nor the stars appeared, while the storm continued to rage until gradually all hope of survival vanished. It was then, when they had gone a long time without eating, that Shaul stood up in front of them and said, You should have listened to me and not set out from Crete. If you had, you would have escaped this disastrous loss. But now my advice to you is to take heart, because not one of you will lose his life. Only the ship will be lost. For this very night, there stood next to me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, and he said, Don't be afraid, Shaul. You have to stand before the emperor. Look, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So men, take heart, for I trust God. I believe that what I have been told will come true. Nevertheless, we have to run aground on some island. It was the 14th night. We were still being driven about in the Adriatic Sea when around midnight, the sailors sensed that they were nearing land. So they dropped a plumb line and found the water 120 feet deep. A little further on, they took another sounding. They found it 90. Fearing we might run onto the rocks, they let out four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. And at this point, the crew made an attempt to abandon ship. They lowered the lifeboat into the sea, pretending that they were about to let out some anchors from the bow. Shaul said to the officer and the soldiers, unless these men remain aboard the ship, you yourselves can't be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the lifeboat, and let it go. Just before daybreak, Paul urged them all to eat, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have been in suspense, going hungry, eating nothing. Therefore, I advise you to take some food. You're going to need it for your own survival. For not one of you will lose so much as a hair on your head. And when he had said this, he took bread, said the Berachah to, to God in front of everyone, broke it and began to eat. And with courage restored, they all ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board the ship. After they had eaten all they wanted, they lightened the ship by dumping the grain into the sea. When day broke, they didn't recognize the land, but they did notice a bay with a sand beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they cut away the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time they loosened the ropes that held the rudders out of the water. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they encountered a place where two currents meet, and they ran the vessel aground on the sandbar there. The bow stuck, it would not move, while the pounding of the surf began to break up the stern. At this point, the soldiers thought was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim off and escape. But the officer, wanting to save Shaul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to throw themselves overboard first and head for shore. And the rest of us used planks or whatever else they could find from the ship. Thus it was that everyone reached land safely. Quite a story. Perhaps the key word from verse 1 is we. We. See, we tells us that Luke was on board this ship. And so he shared this experience with Paul. 
It explains the wonderful level of detail that we receive. But it also tells us something interesting about how prisoners were transported to their destinations, in this case Rome, Italy. It seems that it was not unusual to have friends and family accompany them. Now we learned that Paul along with some other prisoners who must have been Roman citizens because since they were all on their way to Rome it had to have been that they had appealed to the emperor. They were given over to the custody of a fellow named Julius. Now Julius was a centurion, he was part of the Augustus regiment. There was nothing particularly special about Julius so far as we know except that he along with some troops under his command happened to be on his way to Rome so Festus had him escort Paul there. Now the ship that Julius was on was a cargo carrier. All ships were for cargo, not for passengers. It was the norm, especially for grain carriers, to have a Roman officer on board as it was considered an issue of utmost national security for Rome to always have a reliable supply of grain so that the people were kept fed and happy. The system for carrying vast amounts of grain from the outlying areas of the empire to Rome for distribution involved hiring private ships. In general, Rome's navy was designed for war, not for cargo transport. However, the Roman government had well-defined standards for the size, the construction, and the operation of these private cargo ships, especially for the grain carriers. So critical were they to Rome's national interests. Now we're not told exactly where Paul and his fellow prisoners embarked from. Only that they sh the ship they boarded was an Adramitian ship whose destination was the coast of Asia. Now Adramitian is not a type of ship. Rather it designates the port from which the vessel is flagged. It is modern day Caritash that's on the western coast of Mysia near the Greek island of Lesbos. It wouldn't have been a large ship, but rather it was designed to sail along the coastline. The goal would have been to take this ship to a port where a larger ship, a big grain carrier, suitable for the open water of the Mediterranean, could be hired than to complete their journey to Rome. Now along with Luke, a fellow named Aristarchus accompanied Paul. We're told that he was from Thessalonica where Paul had visited and created a group of believers and while we hear of him on this part of the voyage we don't hear of him after the transfer to a larger ship and then they head on to Italy. That didn't mean he wasn't necessarily on the ship. Very probably he was the same Aristarchus that we read about in Colossians 4 and Philemon 1 who is described as a fellow prisoner with Paul. Now verse 3 explains that after departing from the Holy Land their first port of call was Sidon. Now if they had departed from the port of Caesarea Maritima which seems likely then it was only about 70 miles up the coast to Sidon. This fits well with the story it was no more than one day sailing to get to Sidon. Now we shouldn't read too much into the route that was taken. The, the ships you see were commercial vessels. They were delivering goods and they were picking up other goods along the way. So that would dictate where and when they stopped and for how long. But the other factor you see was the weather. 
There was a sailing season and there was a season that ships virtually quit sailing because of the dangerous conditions and because the winds changed direction and made sailing nearly impossible. Now our story takes place at the time when the sailing season was right at its end. Now we're told that the Roman centurion treated Paul with consideration. Why he had such a positive attitude towards Paul or if it was not only towards Paul but also with the other prisoners, we're just not told. The entire Roman world though was a conscious, a status conscious world. If you were well healed and had means, prisoner or not, this made you more important and you were shown deference. Those voluntarily traveling with Paul would have done so at their own expense. So perhaps this small entourage influenced Julius' thinking about Paul. But the entire story paints Julius as a decent man who cared about the lives of others. In addition to allowing traveling companions with Paul, Julius allowed Paul to visit friends at the ports of call and let them take care of his needs. Now once again we should not assume that this was an exception to the rule. Probably it was typical. Probably Paul was one of the fortunate few prisoners who might have had friends at the various ports. There indeed was a believing community at Sidon at this time. So no doubt that is who received Paul upon his arrival there. See the harsh reality is that aboard a ship paying passengers were required to bring their own food. This is not the Carnival Cruise Lines. And this applied to prisoners as well. So the transport experience could be very different depending upon your level of wealth and whether you had people to take care of your needs or not. From Sidon, the ship continues on east and north of Cyprus, which would have been the leeward side of the island nation. This route was followed due to the westerly winds that blew throughout the summer months, but then changed direction come fall. I want to pause here to mention that an experienced sailor and able scholar named James Smith undertook this same voyage to test the veracity of Luke's reporting in Acts. James Smith published his findings in a book called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. The bottom line is that Luke's report accurately portrays what the route, the weather, the wind direction, the currents, everything that we find in Acts 27 would have been like at this time of year. But now the ship had across a significant area of open ocean between Cyprus and the south coast of, of Asia Minor. First they sailed along the coast of Cyprus because the winds further out to sea would have slowed their progress. But these same winds and currents naturally aided a ship as it crossed this larger expanse to reach Lycia. It was there in Lycia that Julius found a larger ship that was more suitable for continuing on to Rome. Now this ship in the scriptures is called an Alexandrian ship. Once again, the reason for its designation is, is that it was flagged in the port of Alexandria, Egypt. 
What was a ship all the way from Egypt doing in Lycia? Well, at this time in history, Egypt was the breadbasket for Rome, providing a major portion of its vast grain needs. This would have been a much larger ship, much, much larger than Paul had just got off of, kind of a, a super tanker of grain carriers for that day. It's believed that Rome needed 400,000 tons of grain per year to feed its people. Josephus claims Egypt supplied fully one-third of that need all by itself. Now I mentioned earlier that the Roman government introduced standards for the ships that they hired to bring grain to Rome. One of the standards was that the minimum that a ship could haul was 68 tons. In the time of Claudius, which is actually just a few years before our story, that standard was upped to 340 tons. Roman records indicate that cargo ships varied in size in that day from 50 to 100 feet in length. There were also some larger vessels, around 130 feet long. One vessel is reported to have been 180 feet long with crew, guards, and passengers that totaled 600 people. Luke says that the ship they had just transferred to had how many people on it? 276. So it was a medium-sized ship. Now to give you an idea, or something at least to compare it with, the Mayflower that brought the pilgrims to America's shore was no more than 100 feet long. And the passengers and a crew amounted to 135 souls. And this was a ship that at least had limited accommodations for passengers. And of course was a much more advanced sailing vessel than in Paul's day. Our ship in Acts had no passenger accommodations, was probably smaller, and yet it carried twice as many people. To say it was crowded and uncomfortable would be an understatement. On the other hand, the expected voyage time was perhaps two weeks. The Mayflower took two months to cross the Atlantic. That said, bad weather and other conditions were known to have made the voyage across the Mediterranean to Rome to take over six weeks. So under the best of circumstances, this voyage was not going to be very pleasant. So the journey heads on now from Lycia, but the winds weren't cooperating, so they made a little headway. After several days at sea, they finally reached Sinaitis, and here they faced two alternatives. They could either wait for a change to more favorable wind conditions or they could continue immediately along the eastern side of Crete. They took the second choice. No doubt a decision made by the ship's owner for commerce reasons. But they still experienced very rough seas, slow progress, so they put in at a place called Pleasant Harbor or more accurately Fair Haven. Not too far from Fairhaven was the city of Lycia, where they could have stayed for the winter if they decided to go no further. Well, verse 9 tells us that they were at the season when the shipping lanes were closing. 
It says they were past the fast, is what it says in the original. Past the fast. The fast was a common expression among Jews. That meant Yom Kippur, like we have in our complete Jewish Bibles. The Day of Atonement, when every Jew fasted. If this was the year 59 AD, which many scholars think it was, and I, I think they're probably right, then Yom Kippur was at the end of the first week of October. Smaller vessels generally ended their sailing season by mid-September. Much larger vessels by the first part of November. Sailing usually didn't start up again until mid-March. So the reports of winds that weren't favorable and the building up of seas are to be expected for the time of year of our story. More life and decisions now how to be made. And Paul, with his choleric personality, of course puts forth his opinion on what ought to be done. Now Paul was no stranger to the perils of traveling by ship. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says that he was shipwrecked three times. So his stance on the matter, which was to pause the voyage and, and winter in Fairhaven, is pretty understandable. He didn't want to do this. Paul had no official position. He had no authority to affect any kind of outcome. He was a prisoner. He was on his way to a hearing before Nero. However, it is known that in such matters, the ship's crew, the ship's owner, and the passengers would have a council to at least discuss the options and the consequences of each choice thoroughly. Paul warns that he's certain a catastrophe lies ahead with losses to cargo and to their lives if they continue in this inclement weather. Now, he is not speaking prophetically. Rather, he's offering advice based on his personal experience and common sense. But his advice was rejected. The ship's owner and the helmsman thought that there was a good chance that they could just continue to a better port because they didn't think Fair Havens was the optimal choice for spending the next four or five months. So they departed hoping to make the port of Phoenix, another harbor that was on the same island of Crete. Now, interestingly, the final decision was left up to Centurion Julius. He opted to sail on to Phoenix, probably because he had several prisoners he was responsible for. But there would have to be a change in the wind for this plan to work. So they had to wait and see what happened. And sure enough, the winds changed, making sailing to Phoenix possible. So they set out, they followed the coast of Crete, uh, coast of Crete going west. Now if everything went well, it would only take a few hours, hours to get to Phoenix. This was less than 50 miles away. There they could wait out the winter much more comfortably. But suddenly, without warning, a violent gale blew up and the wind direction changed from a gentle southerly to a fierce north wind. This means the ship would be driven towards the south, away from the shelter of the island. Such winds come off of Crete's Mount Ida, which is an 8,000 foot peak on that island. And you see, because of the geography of the island, winds are funneled together around the mountain, and it creates a cyclonic effect, and it makes its sailing impossible. For one thing, the bow of the boat cannot be directed into a swirling wind. The ship is now at the sea's mercy. It's drifting. It has no means of control. 
Phoenix was now out of the question. Survival anywhere. Anywhere it could be obtained. That was the mode. And by good fortune, the ship was pushed into the leeward side of an island called Cauda, which sheltered it for a short time while the crew, with great difficulty, we're told, hoisted the lifeboat up onto the ship's deck in order that it wouldn't be smashed to pieces. Lifeboats were dragged along behind the ship. Then they were brought forward if they were needed. Well, next in a desperate measure, to keep that ship from coming apart at the seams and, and, shri- and sinking, they wrapped ropes around the hull, under the ship, back up the other side, kind of like belts. But their biggest fear was getting pushed 400 miles southwest and on to the Sirtis. Now the Sirtis was essentially a huge field of underwater quicksands off the present day coast of Libya. They next took the measure of dropping something into into the water to slow their drift. I think it must have been something like a sea anchor that would create resistance to the direction of movement of the vessel and use the the current uh, to help steer it to some degree. Anyway, it's not intended to stop the drift or even really change its direction. The hope was it would just kind of buy them more time for the storm before they hit the dreaded Sirtis. Well, verse 18 says that the heavy weather continued and they had to begin jettisoning cargo. Now, the reason for throwing cargo overboard is to lighten the ship because it's taking on water. Now, at this point, the ship's owner has changed his tactics from trying to maximize his cargo investment to saving his valuable ship. And three days later, the storm is still raging. The ship has taken on even more water and the seams of the hull are beginning to separate. The wave action throws tons of water across the deck. The deck, the hold down below begins to fill up with seawater. What's down there? Grain. The grain is absorbing the water. It's beginning to swell. Not only adding tons more weight, but what do you suppose its expansion is doing? It's trying to push the boat apart from the inside out. The spare tackle and rigging is the next thing to go. Luke continues to speak of we Because for some time now, since the storm erupted, it's been all hands on deck as passengers and crew work together to try to save their own lives. Now you see, there were no compasses in those days. All navigating was done by the stars and the sun and by sightings of land. But the storm had gone on for so long that there were no stars or or even the sun to see and gauge where they'd been pushed to. They could only guess. And such a thing is disheartening to the best sailors. No doubt terrifying to passengers and soldiers who were not seafarers. This was one of the worst storms in anyone's memory. And and many on board felt all was lost. No doubt motion sickness was taking a toll. But also the appetite suppressing emotion of depression was having its effects. Strength, emotional and physical, and the will to survive were just kind of draining away. 
There was little interest in eating. I'm not even sure how they might have prepared food in those conditions. I mean, after all, food didn't come in pre-prepared packets, you know, like it does today. It was usual even to bring some small livestock along that could be slaughtered and butchered on board a, a sailing vessel. John Newton, who was a noted clergyman and a, and a hymn writer, records this about one of his many sea adventures. He says this, We found that the water having floated all of our movables in the hold, all the casks of provisions had been beaten to pieces by the violent motion of the ship. On the other hand, our livestock, such as pigs and sheep and poultry, had been washed overboard in the storm. In effect, all the provisions we saved would have subsisted us but a week at a very scanty allowance. Everything on board Paul's ship was wet and ruined. But Paul, still managing to keep his head about him, told everyone that they were all suffering from lack of food. And I suspect he noticed that an air of hopelessness hung over the passengers and, 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 and the crew. And You know, such a thing causes people to want to give up and just kind of passively accept their fate. I guess I can't blame Paul for saying, I told you so. He reminds them he was overruled in his estimation that the best course of action was to stay right where they were at Fair Haven for the winter. Now, I've read more than a few commentaries that attempt to excuse Paul for his remark, even trying to find some sort of a pious reason for his words, but I find it pretty unconvincing. <clears throat> I'm not criticizing Paul. Who wouldn't have this attitude after what they had all needlessly gone through because of poor judgment and it wasn't nearly over yet I guess I'm okay with it because I would have done the same thing and it's comforting to know that Paul is as human as I am well, Paul then says something astounding he says to them can you imagine this cheer up <laughs> Cheer up. No one's going to die, even though the ship will be lost. Was he delusional? A message of encouragement and hope when it's clear that all everyone is waiting for is the moment of their death? Had he only, not days earlier, warned them to stay in Fair Haven, otherwise, people were certain to die? So now he says the opposite that no one's going to die. And he's supposed to be taken seriously? Paul knows that this is what they're thinking. And so explains why his change in view when logically there is no reason to believe they're going to survive. It's because he had a divine visitation. Told him all was going to be okay. While a few days earlier he was just speaking from his natural human self and his own considerable experience. Verse 23 explains that a messenger of God, an angel had appeared to him. Literally, it stood beside him. Told him not to be afraid. Why? Why not? Because God had promised Paul that he should appear before Caesar and that is going to happen. God created storms and the seas. His will can't be defeated by that which he created. God's purpose stated several times has been Paul is to take the gospel to Rome. 
Paul uses language that needs to be used among Gentiles to describe this messenger. He speaks about the God that he worships. This has to be spoken in this way because the majority of those on board worship the Roman and Greek gods. But even they knew that the Jews worshipped a different God than they do. And Paul wanted to be clear that the storm God, and the God of the sea, and the God of the wind, and any other God they worshipped could not overcome the will of the God of Israel. And the God of Israel has determined all 276 souls on board will survive. The Lord has granted to Paul the lives of everyone on board that ship even the majority who don't worship him. The suggestion here implies that Paul has been praying for his shipmates. That sounds like Paul. So Paul's not merely trying to sound brave in the face of inevitable death. He has received absolute assurance that all will be well, even though this trial is far from over. But their ship is going to wreck. It's going to wreck on land and it's going to be lost. You know, I'm not sure there's a better example of what it means for God to lead us through a fiery trial as opposed to bringing us out of it than this story. The trauma was going to continue for several more days, actually. The discomforts were going to be intense. But God says, trust me, it's all going to be okay in the end. This brings up an important point we must not lose. It is that God is saving Paul and all the people on board, not just because they, of course, want to be saved. Or they deserve to be saved. It's because God has a larger purpose in mind. Paul getting to Rome to speak the good news. The same can work in not such a good outcome as we're going to see. I mean, I don't mean to be harsh, but our personal benefit and welfare aren't necessarily behind all of God's decisions. So we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be disappointed in God when things don't go our way. Just because we're believers, or maybe even among his most devoted worshipers. Verse 27 begins, it was the 14th night. My goodness! They've been suffering this storm and all of its horror nows for two full weeks. Can you imagine not knowing if they would live or die for most of that time, unable to eat, unable to get dry? How miserable. They were in a part of the Mediterranean Sea called the Sea of Adria, despite some commentators claiming that the modern name is the Adriatic Sea like we have in our complete Jewish Bibles. That's not the case. That is not where they were. They were not in the Adriatic Sea. The sailors begin to sense now that they're nearing land somewhere. Perhaps they hear the faint sound of breakers. 
So the first thing to do was to check the water depth. The shallower the water, the closer the land they were likely to be. Their first check puts the depth at 120 feet. Short time later, they dropped the depth line again, 90 feet. This was good news. Well, it was also bad news kind of a thing. Yeah, they were nearing land. But land was often surrounded by huge rocks that could just dash that ship to pieces in minutes. Since they were still drifting with no control over their direction, yet knowing they were near land, they dropped four anchors from the stern. That's the back for you land lovers. It's the back of the ship. And then they waited for daylight to survey the situation. The anchor served as a brake. And dropping anchors from the rear of the boat wasn't the usual procedure. But in this case, it served a useful purpose. This kept the bow of the ship, that's the pointy front part, towards land. And had they anchored from the bow, you see, the ship would have swung around from the wind and they would have been pointing towards the sea. That's not where they wanted to go. Well, a combination of hope and panic now set in. Some of the hired sailors decided to put their life, put the, put the lifeboat that was on the deck into the water and a road ashore, hopefully navigating through the rocks that they feared were there, saving themselves first. It was dark. It was still stormy. So they were hoping they wouldn't be discovered. So they pretended that they were going forward to drop additional anchors, this time off the bow, well, the ever-vigilant Paul noticed them. He understood what they were doing. So he goes to Julius, tells him that unless these men remained on board, he, Julius, wouldn't survive. Now, exactly why the sailors needed to remain on board or would cause the loss of life to the centurion and presumably to the others isn't stated. Perhaps it's just because the skilled sailors would be needed in the coming hours to help beach the ship. But this time Julius had learned that it was probably best to heed Paul. So he ordered some of his soldiers to cut the ropes that those sailors were using to lower the lifeboat and defeated their plan. The lifeboat, however, was now lost. All 276 are trapped on this battered ship. To their thinking, all would now drown together or survive together in the next few hours. The storm raged on and no one knew where they were, what morning was going to bring. I suspect a lot of prayers went up that night. Well, we'll learn about the miraculous outcome next time.